0: If you're new with us, we are uh, in a series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, known simply as Romans. And uh, we have uh, come now to Romans 11, uh, 33 through 36, which means that we have come to the end of chapter 11. Can you believe it? <laughs> it's like, uh, would we ever get here? Um, but we've got five, five more chapters to go. But we've been in this, I think, since January. Anybody remember when we started this? I've lost, what's that? 20 years ago? Something like that. I've lost track. Over the course of the first 11 chapters of this letter to the believers in Rome, the Apostle Paul has been unfolding uh, his account of the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. And methodically, step by step, line by line, painstakingly, he has taught us how God has revealed his way of making people, sinful people, right with himself, how Christ died for our sins, how he was raised for our justification, how we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, how the Christian life is not lived under the law but by grace in the Spirit, how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel, And the fullness of the Gentiles into his new community. The landscape of Romans is vast, and uh, I I sometimes think, having studied this as as deeply as I try to each week, I look back and I think, "Phew! There's a lot. There's so much there." Paul speaks to both time and eternity. Uh, history and the end times, the last days, justification, sanctification, glorification, the church. And here in verses 33 to 36, Paul pauses. And as I mentioned, he's about to spend the next five chapters outlining in practical terms how to live an authentically Christian life he's he's come to the end he's coming to the end now of his of the theological portion of his letter and he goes into real practical uh, teaching on on practical christianity how to live it out but before he goes there it's as if he just can't contain himself any longer uh, analysis and argumentation turn to adoration the discipline of his mind melds into the devotion of his heart. Theology gives way to poetry, if you will. And he just falls down before God and worships him. And so that's where we're going this morning. Would you stand and let's read our scripture this morning, just four verses. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, there's a sense in which the best we might do on this occasion is simply to join Paul in worship, to to see where he's been and the things he has taught us, and and to allow ourselves to be carried away in worship as he is on this occasion. Uh, We should do that. But there's another sense in which Paul, the rabbi, the consummate teacher, is once again, even in his worship, teaching us. Uh, There's a great deal that we can learn about what it means to worship by following Paul's example My desire for you, for all of us, is that we would become great worshipers. Great worshipers of a great God. So let's examine Paul's worship on this occasion. And see what we can learn from his example. Notice, first of all, in verse 33, that Paul praises God with an astonished exclamation. An astonished exclamation. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. I wonder if you've ever felt like I have at times, that you kind of need to understand everything in order to worship the God who really does understand everything. Of course, that would be impossible, and, and it's an unrealistic Impulse—it's an unrealistic expectation. In fact, it's it's the realization of the inability to understand everything that moves Paul to worship. It just ignites him. He's so overwhelmed with the thought of what God has that what God has done and is doing and will do in the future is beyond anything that humans could begin to understand. Tim Keller, who you know is one of my favorite writers contemplating this wrote a god whose counsel we could fully grasp ways we could fully whose ways we could fully discern and whose nature we could fully explain in our human minds would be a fairly limited god the god of the bible is far bigger than us far far bigger than us so we can follow paul's example here and, and not worry about we About what we don't understand. We should praise Him for all that He has revealed. If we would spend uh, our time focusing on that, it would keep us busy for a lifetime. Because there's more that has been revealed than we really respond to, and, and we should be worshiping and praising God for all of it. And we should also praise Him for all that we don't understand, all that He has not yet revealed of which there is infinitely more, I I think. And I imagine that that we're going to praise God in eternity for so much that we simply cannot understand, cannot grasp this side of heaven. Things that have not yet been revealed. And, And it's precisely because, I think, we can't even begin to understand everything about him that we should stand in awe of him. We should be amazed at him. Verse 33 is really a new testament equivalent of isaiah 55 8 where god says through the prophet for my thoughts are not your thoughts neither are your ways my ways declares the lord for as the heavens are higher than the earth so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts that good And I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases verse 33 of Romans 11 in the Message Bible. He says, have you ever come on anything quite like this extravagant generosity of God? This deep, deep wisdom. It's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. So good. God's generosity, his wisdom are unfathomable actually the word that paul uses there in verse 33 that first word Uh, unfathomable we can't plumb its depths his ways are inscrutable they're untrackable they're untraceable to him be glory to him be glory forever and then in verses 34 to 35 paul poses two rhetorical questions two rhetorical questions the the two exclamation marks and in verse 33, are followed by two question marks in verses 34 and 35. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And it's worth noting that as Paul worships God, he quotes freely from the word of God. Behind verses thirty four to thirty five are three very clear verses from the Old Testament. First Isaiah forty thirteen, who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? And then Job thirty five, seven, if you are righteous, what do you give to him, or what has he received from your hand? And then Job forty one eleven. Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven, God says, is mine. So here's a a dose of realism that we really need to take to heart. It would be the height of arrogance for any of us to to beat our chests and claim, as verse 33 has already shown, that, that we have somehow comprehended the mind of the Lord. And that we could, on that basis, presume to offer him advice. There are segments of Christianity today that teach that very thing, that that because we have the mind of Christ, we can give counsel to God. <laughs> wow. It would be the height of foolishness for any of us to claim that we've given him a gift or two that kind of puts him in our debt. That we've kind of got him over the barrel because... Boy, are we serving him. Boy, are we giving to him. He'd better come through for us. See, you and I will never be, I'm sorry, you and I will never be God's counselors. He and he alone is called the wonderful counselor. You and I will never be God's creditors. We are utterly poor. We're poverty stricken. He is infinitely, inexhaustibly wealthy. Wealthy and unbelievably generous. See, the answer to both of the rhetorical questions in verses 34 and 35 is no one. No one. We are entirely dependent on his wisdom to teach us. We are entirely dependent on his generosity to save us and to sustain us. It is always God who takes the initiative. It is only his mercy and his grace that, that make it possible for sinners like you and me to, to have access to God, find a relationship with him at all. And then third, Paul presents a theological affirmation. Imagine that in the middle of worship. A theological affirmation for, from him. And through him and to him are all things. Or from him and through him and to him are all things. And this is why we as humans are completely dependent on God. What's included in that two word phrase there, all things? Usually in Scripture, that phrase is used to refer to the material creation, that which we can see and feel and hear and taste and touch, smell. But because Paul is actually talking here about the incomprehensibility of God, we can pretty safely assume that Paul clearly had far more in mind than the material creation. He, he has been talking about the new creation, hasn't he? The, the grafting of Gentile believers into Israel to the end that a, a new multiracial, multiethnic, multilingual people of God has come into being. And yet, even that cannot be all that is in view in Paul's theological affirmation here in verse 35. 36. Notice the three prepositions from, through, and to. Taken together, they indicate at least this that God is the creator, sustainer, and owner of everything. He is its source, He is its mean. And he is its goal. He is both the Alpha and the Omega and every letter of the alphabet in between. Alpha and Omega in in the Greek language is like A and Z in ours. He is the beginning and the end. And I love this from John Stott in his commentary on Romans. He says, if we ask where all things came from in the beginning and still come from today, the answer must be from God. If we ask how all things came into being and remain in being, our answer is through God. If we ask why everything came into being and where everything is going, our answer must be for and to God. God. Finally, Paul proceeds at the end to a joyful declaration. A joyful declaration. To him be glory forever. Amen. All things are from him, through him, and to him. Because that is true, he alone is worthy to be glorified. He alone is worthy of worship. He alone is worthy of praise, honor. And that's why human pride and arrogance is really so offensive, isn't it? I mean, pride is behaving as if we were God Almighty, strutting around like we own the place. Ignoring the truth of our creatureliness Acting as if we are not completely dependent on him. Pretending instead that everything is from us, through us, to us, good or bad. And in so doing, laying claim for ourselves to the glory that belongs to him alone. You know, one of the things I get concerned about here at LifePoint, and it's my job to be concerned about a lot of things, But one of the things that's often on my mind for LifePoint and and really for the contemporary church in general is the pervasive man-centeredness and individualism that characterizes so many of our expressions in worship and our attitudes about worship. The Bible never points to human accomplishment as a reason to worship God. It's when we focus our thoughts and our meditations on the sovereign greatness of God and in doing so recognize our own weakness and our own complete and utter dependence on him that our hearts fill with joy and rise up to praise and exalt him. Man-centered thoughts will never inspire our greatest worship. They may inspire self-worship. But it's focusing on God and God alone, who he is, what he's done, what he will do. That somehow ignites in us a desire to worship. Worship. where do we go with this? Here are two takeaways that I I hope that you might reflect on. The first is that there can be no doxology without theology. By doxology, I mean praise and worship. The, The word doxa in the Greek means praise. There can be no doxology without theology. Jesus said The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Notice with me that that Jesus said that God is seeking Worshippers. We might fill that blank with lots of other things. You might say God is seeking church attenders, and God is seeking givers, and God is seeking disciples, and you might put a lot of things in that blank. Jesus said what God is seeking is worshipers. God's goal in your life is to make you a great worshiper. That ought to be your goal as well. And the kind of worshipers that he is seeking is those who worship in spirit and in truth. One way of understanding what Jesus is saying in John 4 is that our theology, our belief about God, and our doxology, our worship of God, should never be separated. We should never see them as separate matters. And when I say that there can be no doxology without theology, I'm talking about worshiping God in truth. And I'm saying that it's not possible to worship an unknown God. It's not possible to worship a God with whom we only have a casual awareness or a casual relationship. And I'm saying that doxology... Praise and worship, whether it's when the church gathers or the church scatters in our daily lives, in our homes, in our vehicles, in our workplaces, in our athletic clubs, in the store, when you're in your bed, when you're on the couch worshiping the Seahawks, or not. Worship that is theologically anemic. Worship that is doctrinally sloppy. Worship that is man centered versus God centered. Worship that is not informed by truth. Worship that does not consist in declarations of the truth about God in praise of his attributes, worship that is offered for some lesser reason than a response of joy and reverence and awe to the revelation of the nature and the character and the will and the ways of God, worship that does not lift up the cross of Jesus Christ and exalt his name, will in fact be joyless, lacking in passion and ultimately cannot be described as biblical Christian worship. There can be no doxology without theology. We've already seen in this brief passage that even as Paul praises God, he's quoting Scripture itself. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? You and I should aspire to be great worshipers and our worship will be deeper and richer as we come to understand more and more of the wisdom and the knowledge and the power and the mystery, and the majesty, and love, and grace, and mercy, and kindness of God. All true worship is in response to the self-revelation of God, that he has made himself known in the person of Jesus Christ, and arises from our reflection on who he is and what he has done. Here's the second takeaway this morning. There must be no theology without doxology. There must be no theology without doxology. Here I'm talking about worshiping God in spirit. Our reflection on who God is and what he has done should always move us to praise and worship. When you study the Word of God, whether it's the Old Testament Prophets, or, or Jesus, or one of the apostles. One of the realizations you may come to is that truth is never treated as something merely to be known, or studied, or even applied in our lives. Truth is always seen in Scripture as a gateway into worship. It's always a gateway into praise of God. What does that mean? It means that you and I should never study the Bible in a cool, detached, intellectual only manner. It doesn't mean we shouldn't apply our minds carefully and soberly to serious study. We should. But it does mean that as we do, we we have to allow ourselves to be on one occasion disturbed, on another occasion comforted, and on other occasions challenged by the truth. It means that we should never approach the study of the Bible without allowing ourselves to feel its power and, and to respond to God accordingly. And if that doesn't happen, if, you, if you're not having that experience, if your theology doesn't move you to praise and worship, then, then one or more of a number of explanations exist. Let me just suggest two as I close. First, it may be that your theology is inadequate. That is, your view of the nature and the character and the conduct of God is simply too small and too uninformed. You need to grow in your knowledge of who he is, what he does, what he's done. And as you do, it's likely that your worship will grow and mature. But it's a choice that you and I will make. Second, if your exposure to sound biblical teaching doesn't move you to praise and worship... It may be that your spirit has not yet been made alive. You are still dead in your sins. After the first service, uh, someone came up to me and, and said, I, as you were saying that, I couldn't help but think of this passage. And it's John chapter 5, verses 37 to 40. And Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. He says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, listen to what he says. He's talking, to, he's talking to the religious leaders of Israel here. It's gutsy, truthful. His voice you have never heard. Whoa. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. (laughs) To the people in Jesus' day whom everybody thought had it together. Because they were religious elites. They were the interpreters of Scripture. They were the studiers of Scripture. And they had idolized Scripture to the exclusion of the one that Scripture spoke about. It's possible to have a fully developed, flawless theology, I guess and still be spiritually dead. There's a well-known conservative radio host whom I had the opportunity to converse with many years ago. And I said to him, you seem to understand Christianity very well. This guy happens to be Jewish. I said, you articulate the gospel more clearly than a lot of evangelicals I know can do. I said, why aren't you a Christian? He said, I just can't believe that Jesus is Messiah. Simply that. I just can't go there. Well-developed theology, great intellectual understanding, but still spiritually dead So unless you've transferred your trust to Christ from your morality and your religiosity and your cleverness and your cuteness and all of that to Jesus Christ alone and what he accomplished at the cross for you until that's happened and you've been born again, made new in Christ, passed from death to life, Your attempts at worship, and I'll grant you, maybe you're trying. You're trying to feel your way into something. Your attempts at worship will be lifeless, lacking in passion. Because like the Pharisees, you are still dead in your sins. You'll go through the motions, you'll feel nothing. You cannot celebrate your salvation because you've never received salvation. Your sins have not yet been forgiven. You're still separated from God. And if that's true of you, I want to urge you to allow today to be the day that your spirit is made alive in Christ. That Today might be the day when you pass from death to life, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ and you are transformed from the inside out. Let today be the day when you begin the journey toward becoming a real worshiper, a great worshiper in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's great example. Lord, would you allow that thing to happen in us that makes your word alive in us because we have been made alive Your spirit has made us alive. Your spirit has taken up residence in our lives. And your spirit, whose main goal is to glorify Jesus, your spirit transforms us from the inside out and makes us great worshipers. Lord, I pray for those today who do not know you, that today might be the day when you grant them the gift of life. They say yes to Jesus. And they enter into your family as fully adopted sons or daughters of God. We love you, Lord. Teach us. Make us great worshipers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.